Hi, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Tim. And this is the Classical Music Pod. We've got Fretwork's fabulous new CD. Finland's most famous export. And a new feline-themed playlist for all the cat lovers out there. On with the pod. Good news on one of our running stories. The opera director Kirill Sobrenikov has been released by the Russians who have been keeping him under house arrest for almost two years. Mm, unfortunately, he's still not allowed to leave the city limits of Moscow. Less good. But Barry Kosky of Berlin's Commie Shop has booked him already to direct uh, Stravinsky's Rex Progress next season. Fantastic. Another story of operatic perseverance comes to us from Franz Mazura, the world-renowned Wagnerian bass baritone is playing Meister Hans Schwarz in Berlin's Meister Singers under Baron Boy next week. The day after the run ends, he will be 95. Yeah, and he's still looking for roles after that. What a hero. Conversely, some villains have emerged from the Hungarian state opera this week who will be putting on a performance of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, which requires casts to be of African ethnicity. Now... 15 out of the 28 performers have signed a piece of paper stating that they are of African-American descent and recognise themselves as African when they are, in fact, white. This feels like a deliberately controversial and provocative gesture and is perhaps a symptom of the racially charged atmosphere in Viktor Orban's Hungary. Mm, Indeed. This feels like such a disingenuous charade. They are obviously not black African-American people. They're raised in Hungary and... Using transracialism as a charade is kind of similar to when it first came to certainly my consciousness with Rachel Dolezal in 2015, who identified as a black woman to uh, progress her career. Mm. And recently there have been legitimate cases of transracialism. The most obvious example is Anthony Lennon, the playwright who is born to white parents and yet identifies as black and indeed received racial abuse growing up in Ireland because he looks mixed race. He was one of the recipients from the Arts Council of a fellowship aimed at black ethnic minority artists. Because there no doubt is, it seems to affect some people certainly, but with everything that people are doing to undermine the positive discrimination that's going on, it feels like a way of warping that and sort of making fun almost Mm. of the fact that we're trying to support minorities it does feel very disingenuous isn't it yep unfortunately we have more racially charged bad news this week with matthew scott who's the eton educated former head of music at the national theater and he's the ex head of composition at southampton university who was allegedly commented on a bbc news article about the israeli election saying the time for the erasure of israel and the completion of the cleansing process is rapidly approaching Now, this is shocking. I mean, it's awful and mad. And I just can't understand how, as a musician, someone who has grown to... who's been taught to empathise and feel with the other, how on earth you can say these kind of things. Um, Mm. It's just appalling. We should say that this hasn't actually been proven to be Matthew Scott, but his contact details have been taken down from his agent's website. He has a record of saying racially charged things on Facebook, and we haven't had any comment from him. No, and the police are certainly investigating him. Mm. Tim, can we have some better news, please? i got just the thing. If you're into burgers, bourbon and Beethoven, there is a festival of the same name occurring <laughs> at the Greenwood Cemetery on May the 25th in New York. That sounds like it's tailor-made for me. Oh, yeah, there's a wonderful press release saying this is worth it. 
The event will feature competing burger recipes that will be sampled and rated by the audience, mm. a whiskey tasting of boutique bourbons alongside craft cocktails, and a performance of Beethoven's Immortal Fifth by the String Orchestra of Brooklyn, conducted by Eli Spindle. What a good day out. In other American news, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is still on strike at loggerheads, and we sympathise with the livelihoods of those people, but actually no progress to report. Tim, if we're to believe science that we will all one day die, how would you like to go? Surrounded by friends and family, doing what I love. Just like Yu Zhao Gu. Indeed. Last weekend, Yu Zhao Gu, a violinist in the Symphony of South East Texas, passed away mid-concert, which is sad, but... Beautiful in a number of ways. His wife, who was another member of the violin selection, was next to him. They were desk partners. Uh, he couldn't be resuscitated on stage, but he very much died doing what he loved, surrounded by the people he loved. One of our absolute heroes, Yo-Yo Ma, is going to be performing on Laredo's International Bridge. That's the bridge that connects Laredo and Nuevo Laredo, in other words, between the United States and Mexico. There, with the Rio Grande beneath him, he'll be playing 15 minutes of Bach. It's part of his world tour, where he'll be performing all six Bach cello suites from memory in 36 cities on six continents. In each of those cities, he'll be giving a concert and also leading a day of action, trying to get different communities to work together, make music together, talk to one another. Now, I'm a big fan of how Yo-Yo Ma is using his enormous platform to Mm. promote this idea of, of brotherhood. And... Interestingly, in The Times today, Richard Morrison, classical music critic, disagreed. He said, if music has any part to play in politics, political disputes or military conflict, its role should surely be consoling and conciliatory, not partisan and inflammatory. Now, you can't deny that Yo-Yo Ma is promoting a political message by playing on this bridge. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he's referencing the wall, and in some ways it's relevant to us with what's going on endlessly at the moment with Brexit (laughs) and immigration. However, is... Are his actions partisan? Are they inflammatory? I would suggest that if you are making an effort to bring people together, it's the opposite of that. I think Morrison has cooked up a false dichotomy here by saying that you are either provocative or you're conciliatory. Mm. Um, Ma is provoking conciliatory conversation here. His whole gesture is working against the kind of division that a wall represents. And he's trying to bring people together to communicate and work together to create that salve to heal rifts and what better end could a musician be working towards i've got a fluffy cat story for you i really needed one today yeah philadelphia orchestra's music director our old friend yannick and who's also the principal conductor of the met yeah big deal his partner and him have uh three cats would you like to know their names i'd love to know their names tim rodolfo (laughs) melisande and rafa and he's created a classical music playlist for his pets you can access this 34-hour playlist with 326 hours. songs on Apple Music or Spotify. There you go. Thank you. We'll even put a link in the description. How you feeling, Sam? I've got a little bit of a sniffle, Tim. Um, I... I think I caught it whilst I was out walking in Burgess Park. It was cold and starkly beautiful and, frankly, Scandinavian. And whilst catching this cold, I think I was inspired to analyse that emblem of Scandinavian beauty, Finlandia.
Analysis. Finlandia. Written in 1899 and revised in 1900 by Finnish composer and notation software Jean Sibelius. It's an orchestral work that lasts about eight to nine minutes, perfect for boiling an egg to, or roughly the amount of time it takes light to reach the earth from the sun. Oh, nice! Finlandia is also a tone poem, a subgenre of pieces pioneered by Hungarian high priest of the piano, Franz Liszt. They include an extra musical element. In Finlandia, the extra musical element is the descriptive title. Pass, a steam engine we'll talk about later. The form of tone poems should be defined by their musical and emotional content. That might mean it's a matchstick model of a matchstick. The musical small scale reflected in the large. Or it might mean a close following of a narrative through music, depicting sword fights, thunderstorms, or gastronomic disturbance. The question I wish to pose for us today is if Finlandia is a carefully constructed tone poem, why does it work so well in the Michael Kamen score for Die Hard 2, Die Harder? Why does John McClane's second outing stopping terrorists at Christmas, this time at an airport, sound a bit like this? The overarching theme of any good crime drama, like Die Hard 2, Die Harder, is initially chaotic pieces of information being brought into order. Can we decipher the villain's code? This is why my dad finds it so cathartic to watch any of the acronym dramas, NCIS, CSI, LAPD. They bring order to his otherwise chaotic mind. Sorry, Jules. Musically, Sibelius starts the piece with very unstable harmony. F-sharp minor in second inversion. We're departing from as distant a tonal location to the final destination as possible. It sounds murky and unclear without a directional sense of pulse or phrase structure. It's disorientating and disordered. Over the course of the piece as a whole, we will go from this instability to a very firmly grounded A-flat major chorale. If you're 19th century music theorist Heinrich Schenker, it's a large-scale auxiliary cadence. If you're John McLean, it's the journey from first discovering a porcelain weapon in airport security to igniting a jet engine's fuel tank with your cigarette. yippee ki indeed. In the slow introduction of the piece, we meet all the key players, and by key players I mean both keys and our hero, villain and comedic airport policeman. Or F-sharp minor, C minor, and A-flat major. They're all featured in the first few cadences, but also form the large-scale tonal skeleton of the work. Sibelius's piece is a matchstick model of a matchstick. The clues build up to the conclusion. Those clue fragments aren't only going on in the harmony and tonality, though. There's also melodic clues. 
The great rousing hymn Finlandia ends with that famous melody, that sense of certainty in the conclusion, doesn't arrive out of nothing. The hymn melody has been foreshadowed in clues throughout. Our first melodic clue is still in the slow introduction at bar 24. Then at bar 100 we get this. Listen to the woodwind when they come in. And finally in bar 132 we hear the whole tune for the first time. This is when our hero gets his theme tune. The clues coalesce, the baddie is revealed, and now everyone can go and destroy a suburban house with a snowmobile in clearly established A-flat major. By the end of the piece, the melody is compressed into one conclusive phrase in the brass, before ending on unison octaves. From chaos, an ordered singularity. If we assume that the narrative of John McClane wasn't what was going through Sibelius's head when he wrote Finlandia, we have to ask what his version of slow chaos to fast, unified purpose was. One clue is in the original title, not actually Finlandia, but Suomi Hraa. Translated, it's Finlandia Awakens. Written for the Helsinki Press Association Awards, it was to accompany a tableau of historic Finnish figures like poet John Runesberg, Elias Lonrot, transcriber of the Kalevara, basically where we get Lord of the Rings from, and of course a steam engine. Finland, a nation often oppressed, is becoming self-determinate. Its national identity is being formed. Out of dark days, piece by piece, a nation with its own language, myths and industry. Poems, art and fantasy series on Amazon is awakening. Piece by piece clue by clue. Finlandia is a hymn to the unification of Finland's national identity and part of a wider movement across Europe reflected in other nationalist works like Liszt's Hungaria, Balakirev's Russia and Smetner's Mavlast. Die Hard 2 may be able to lift Finlandia into a crime drama because creating order from chaos is an abstract narrative that can be redeployed on John McClane, Genesis stories or even Marie Kondo. What the film wasn't able to take with it was the cultural baggage and significance that Finlandia has accrued in its 119-year life. The wonderful thing about a hymn is it's inclusive. There's a voice part for everyone, high or low, and you may move together in step, certain of purpose and place in the order. 
That has meant everyone in Finland has a way to express their national identity in a shared, creative way that is contingent upon diverse skills working together. When they do this, it sounds like this. Composer fact file, Jean Sibelius. Born Heimelinia on December the 8th, 1865. He was rejected as a violinist by the Vienna Philharmonic. The great Finnish nationalist grew up speaking Swedish and only learned Finnish in his 20s. When he turned 70, a banquet was thrown in his honor and it was attended by all the previous living presidents of Finland. In 1898, he was given a government salary. At the end of World War I, he started shaving his head. He arrived too drunk to conduct his sixth symphony in Sweden in 1923. He was diagnosed with throat cancer in his 40s, but lived to be 92. There was a set of postage stamps issued in his honor. He burnt his eighth symphony rather than have it heard. He once said, Pay no attention to what the critics say. No statue has ever been put up to a critic. Tim, you've been to see my favourite pair of French composing sisters. I have. I went to see works by the Boulanger sisters at the Barbican. It was part of the BBC's Total Immersion Day. And I really enjoyed myself. It was, uh, I think the story of the Boulanger sisters is, it's touching, it's tragic, it's inspiring, Mm. it's fascinating, all in equal measure. So Lily is the youngest and she was a child prodigy. She died when she was 24, tragically, of tuberculosis in 1918. And her sister Nadia, who ended up teaching the likes of Copeland, Philip Glass, even Quincy Jones... (laughs) went on to champion her music, basically. And in doing so, she trailblazes away for a host of women conductors and composers who I don't think necessarily would have had the confidence to go into classical music had she not done that. Mm. So it's inspiring. Saturday night was basically the conclusion to a whole day of works dedicated to the two composers. and It was James Gaffigan conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Chorus. And the opening half was entirely dedicated to Lily Boulanger, we had works like her Veil Pierre Boudique, which uh, sets a French translation of an ancient Buddhist text. And James Way, tenor, 
singing over the chorus and god yeah. what a voice silky beautiful he's an english english tenor i think he's somebody to look out for definitely and uh, it's an interesting work it's i mean undoubted debussy influence can be heard in a sort of diaphanous orchestration it's it's got modal scales it's got halto melodies octatonic melodies and for those of you who don't know what an octatonic melody is it's or a scale it, it goes up in alternating half and whole steps Sorts of tones and semitones. Very cool to improvise. It's in. cool, yeah. It sounds like this. And there are actually sections of this piece that could have been ripped directly out of Prelude à la Prémédie du Fond because it was just okay. so. Like uh, there's a flute solo in the beginning, which sounds basically like the introduction to yep. that Debussy piece. But this half actually ended with the piece that she won the Prix de Rome for. It's called Faust and Helen, loosely based on uh, Goethe's Faust. And it's just as referential in style, I think, too. But but rather than to Debussy, I, I heard a lot of Strauss and Wagner, and I could hear a real okay. Germanic influence. The way that it was the way that the keys constantly shifted in and out. There were melodies that were taken and developed over and over and again. Yeah. Well, you know, Nadia, the sister, said uh, famously of Strauss that there are just too many notes. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. But there, there we go. go. So that was performed by tenor Samuel Sacker. He's playing Faust and Katerina Delayman as Helen and ferocious Benedict Nelson as Mephisto. Uh, Benedict yeah. Nelson, the husband of Anna Pachelong, who wore the pro-European dress. Yes, the Royal Albert Hall yes we spoke about it last time. But despite this sort of debt that you can hear to a forebears, she's obviously, yeah. she's young, by the way, at this point. I think she must have, she must have been only a very early 20s when she wrote these works. You can still, you can hear a voice that's her own sort of, through the cracks in this impressionistic late romantic veneer and I think that voice has given free reign in the concluding piece of the concert which was her setting of Psalm 130 and what a work so this is slightly later written between 1914 and 1917 what struck me most was this overwhelming sense of space it felt like it had been written by a very mature composer completely at ease with her tools and and her sound and there was nothing nothing felt rushed nothing felt drawn out nothing it didn't feel like she was showing off it just felt just right like a massive goldilocks yeah exactly and conductor james gafkin did really well to tease out lots of little details like uh the rumbling timpani conjuring the depths out of which the singer's voices <laughs> cry unto knee unto thee which is part of the text and we had lots of bitonality which was Ooh. really interesting Lots of polychords, stacks of chords, but used in a very different way to someone like Stravinsky, whose writers bring premiere just the, the year before she started working on this. So the writers bring that, that famous stack chord, which we use dum, in our dum, 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 yeah in interview. our interview introduction music. That's an E flat seven over an E major chord, or either the other way around. So yeah. it sounds a bit like this. Boulanger uses polychords in a slightly more subtle, uh, more gentle way, I would say. So there's this section in the climax where the whole orchestra is on this very warm F major chord. And then out of nowhere, they've got the cellos and the double basses undercut this with a really thick E flat major chord underneath it. Mm. So it sort of sinks and that's, it's a polychord, but it's got a real jazzy inflection. And then, that again sinks to a G minor chord undercut by a C minor chord in the bottom. 
So that yeah. sound, that progression, and then it goes, and then it goes back to F major. So that progression sounds like this. It's not aggressive. It's got a slight. It's still got that Debussyan magical diaphanous feel to it. And yet yeah. it's still quite daring. So I like to think that Boulanger's stacks are sort of the pagoda to Igor Stravinsky's pancakes. What about Nadia? So we actually only had one work by Nadia, and that was her Fantasie Varie, which is basically a piano concerto in, every, in all but name. Okay. And it, performed by Alexandra Dariesco, who's brilliant. She's a wonderful pianist. This felt like a Rachmaninoff pastiche. You know, she hated Rachmaninoff. I know, and in the programme notes, I found this fascinating. It, we were told that apparently Rachmaninoff refused to fill in for the premiere of this at the last minute. <laughs> and she hated the idea of someone comparing this to a piece by Rachmaninoff, and that she would have hated that. And I've, I'm sorry, Man. I'm really sorry to say this, but it did. It felt like a slightly less convincing early Rachmaninoff, uh, rhapsodic, grand attempt yeah and is that the piece concerto. or the performance do you think i think it's the piece okay but, so it's made up of lots of little elegant ideas and it's kind of like she's got lots of pieces of puzzles from lots of nice looking pictures that she's heard but i think ultimately she struggled to match these puzzle pieces up in any coherent musical picture yeah what's funny is that nadia she actually told what uh, foray once that her music was worthless wrongly i think i don't yeah. think it's worthless but definitely placed in conjunction with works like lily's uh, Psalm 130, which immediately followed, it feels juvenile, which is, I've quoted from a, a review at the time. And I don't think that's a wrong comment, but I think it's unfair because you've got to remember that Nadia was 25. She is a juvenile when she yeah. writes this. And I think had she given herself more time to develop this voice, it would have been every bit as enchanting as her little sister, who was just a bit ahead of the game. And what's doubly tragic is that Nadia stopped composing pretty much as soon as her sister died. And we never really heard that much from the Boulanger oeuvre from about 1918 onwards. Yeah. And that's the double tragedy. If you liked that... You may well like the new release from Fretwork and Yeston Davis on Signum Records called... If. If. It's the same word. It's the same word. It's a combination of works by British composer Michael Nyman, famous for writing the soundtrack to the film The Piano, and Henry Purcell... On the beach. (laughs) He didn't write it on the beach. And Henry Purcell, who never went to the beach, the 17th century British composer most famous for writing Amazing Harmonies. On the beach. The Purcell on this disc is particularly familiar, things like Music for a While, but actually there are a couple of tracks that I hadn't heard before, things like Oh Solitude, My Sweetest Choice. All of it is worth listening to and getting to know and rolling around in because the harmonies are perfection. On Purcell's grave in Westminster Abbey, it says, He is gone to that blessed place where only his harmony can be exceeded. 
He's just one of the absolute kings. Mm. Nyman is the other composer on this disc. On the beach. On the beach. And he has spent a lot of his career being deliberately retrospective. For him, working with a group like Fretwork, a vile consort, makes a lot of sense. Although initially, to some people, it might feel like a uh, collision of cultures. An anachronism. Ooh, very nice. In fact, Nyman said that his aesthetic was developed by playing the aria Madamina from Mozart's Don Giovanni on his piano in the style of Jerry Lee Lewis. So that kind of bringing things together, cultures interacting, is part of his working process throughout his entire career. Having sort of Purcell on vials, throbbing away with some dance bass lines, is absolutely part of his aesthetic. His songs on this disc are simultaneously quite poppy, and yet at the same time reminiscent of that vial consort repertoire. Uh, and I think they're genuinely beautiful as mm. well, and well worth re-listening to. That re-listenability is in no small part due to the vocal performance of Yeston Davis, who I think we both thought was just wonderful. He's got such a good voice. He's he's sort of tripped over into the mainstream a little bit with that um, Farinelli and the King, which is a play uh, that Mark Rylance starred in. I think Mark Rylance's wife wrote it. And it's about one of the last castrati, and Yeston Davis was playing uh, that castrati and has sort of, you know, been to Broadway and stuff, which not every countertenor gets to do. He, just as an aside, he's got, I think, the worst website in the world to read. Oh, um, really? It's like beige text on a white background. Well, that's a terrible decision. It's not helped me find anything out about him at all. Having said that, he is probably the possessor of everyone's platonic ideal of a countertenor voice. Hmm. It's radiant. I don't know, everyone talks about words like purity and lasers when they talk about counter Yeah, yeah, they do, don't they? Um, which Diaphanous. I, yeah, I always think that it sort of takes away the uh, emotional or like the experience quality that a, a mature counter singer can have to be truly expressive rather than uh, alien. Because I think he is really expressive. Uh, having said that, you can't hear any of the words. That's interesting that his website, you can't read any of the words. Maybe he's just sort of post-language. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that it's totally acceptable. Park the fact that you're not going to hear any of the words and enjoy it like Dido. Mm. And by Dido, I of course mean the seller of 22 million records in the early noughties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than the Carthaginian Queen. My favourite track actually on the disc doesn't include Yeston, though. It's called Balancing the Books and has nothing to do with the counting either. The book is Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier and Nyman nicks little motifs from it and reorganises them, puts them together in this sort of catchy mm. dance-like framework. In a way, I think it encapsulates Nyman at his best because... You can leave it on as that enjoyable minimalist wallpaper and it's rhythmic and dancey and tonal. Or, because it's got that intertextual element with the bark, it's really worth a concert performance or going and re-listening to to try and unpick how those motifs interact and how he's really constructed it as a piece of music. It has that dual function. It doesn't matter what you bring to it as a listener, Mm. you're going to get something out of it. Uh, even though it has no yestin on it, it's still fab. And if anything, that just allows you to appreciate the vial sound even more. Mm. It's got that kind of squeeze box quality. It's a real thick sound, isn't it? It's so thick. And you can. All, you, I find it really hard to pick out individual instruments or lines mm. within it when they're up and running. Yeah, uh, It's just so homogenous in a way that even a string quartet isn't. Having greater exposure to that sound world on this disc is no bad thing. And to hear them applying not just the sound that they make, but the phrasing that the instrument lends itself to, to modern repertoire, is really cool. And you don't get that anywhere else, really. And I think that is one of the main reasons why this is well worth a listen or a purchase. Everything on it is put together with great craft and skill and beauty. 
It's recorded immaculately. And you can't get this collision of cultures and playing practice anywhere else. Mm. I got a little bit annoyed recently by, on April Fool's Day, the King Singers did a prank where they said... Really? Uh, I, they, <laughs> they had um, Bieber to Bieber. Heinrich to Justin. Oh, yeah. No, I did. I retweeted it thinking yeah. it was real. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but the point is, and the reason why you've said that, is because actually it's so fruitful bringing together old and new, juxtaposing different music, mm. that... Well, they um, do it all the bloody time. Well, exactly. And I think that to sort of dismiss it or make light of it in that April Fool's way belittles what is a really fruitful and justifiable programming and concert making kind of approach mm. that this disc if makes a really good job of yeah, well to any of the king singers who are listening i would like them to make good with their promise and produce that cd please There is plenty reason at the moment to feel downhearted about the state of music education in the UK. Just last week, a report was released by the Musicians' Union called The State of Play, and that revealed that 97% of the classroom music teachers polled lacked confidence in the government's handling of music education. It also revealed that children from families earning under 28000 a year are half as likely to learn a musical instrument as those with a family income above 48000 This lack of funding combined with the pressure on children to do the International Baccalaureate, which doesn't include music, is starting to become more and more apparent. But there are people doing something about it. And I spoke to one of these people a couple of weeks ago now. So Joanna Forrest is a London-based classical crossover soprano. She was the first independent artist to go straight to number one in the official classical album charts for the debut album. And she's just released a new album called The Rhythm of Life, which is aimed at children in the hope of making classical music more accessible to them. I caught up with Joanna in an Essex cafe to try and find out a little bit more about what she's been up to. Joanna Forrest, thank you very much for coming and having a chat with me today. Hi, thank you for inviting me to chat to you. Pleasure. So you've got this, this album coming out, The Rhythm of Life. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so the idea behind it was is that we recorded it with a full orchestra Mm. at Angel Studios in London and I wanted it to appeal to the whole family and and that younger ears would really be interested in it Mm. as a really a brilliant start to get into classical music, orchestral music because I think sometimes if you say to somebody like, oh you know, do you like classical music? They might be like, no no, it's not really my thing. However, if you then pointed out something that was classical, perhaps um, like a, a brilliant soundtrack to a film, they'd be like, no, I really do like that. Or maybe it's a child playing his computer game and there's a brilliant or- orchestrated um, soundtrack to it, but they're actually well into it. But it's just sort of pointing out to them, no, that is classical music. And you, you've been going around schools promoting this album, am I right? That's or? right. Um, that is the ears that it's intended for. Mm. And some, some children don't get the opportunity really to, to hear a lot of music, especially classical music. And I think, I think that's a shame, um, especially as not every school has the, the capacity to offer a, you know, like a musical education. Um, and, and I think that's a shame because classical music has like, been proven to have so many benefits 
what would be really amazing if it would encourage maybe a child to sing. That doesn't cost anything, does it? It's just the voice. Or maybe even pick up a musical instrument and and to really enjoy music. Do you think it's a very important thing to have as a child in your life, growing up music? I think it. I think it is because I think it sets you up for music being your friend for the whole of your life. And I don't think it even matters whether you're like particularly musical or not. Like you don't have to be amazing. I think you like don't have to be afraid of that mm. at all. Yeah. Because I didn't go to a conservatoire, which means I I love singing and I sort of decided I wanted to be a soprano and I wanted to sing with full orchestras and, and I have. Like I've done um, big proms events that I've I've headlined and obviously I've had one to one singing lessons in the classical style, but I just don't think anyone should be afraid of it if they haven't gone down the traditional route of learning their instrument or learning to sing. And it, it's got to uh, be, be far more diverse if it's going to continue in the, in the way that it is. Mm. Otherwise, big four orchestras, what's their future? Yeah. They're so expensive. And I know. Yeah, and if you know, if if young children aren't getting the music education that they that they, they should, how how are, where are these players going to come from? It's Easter tide. Easter season, there'll be loads of bark and there'll be lots of handle. You don't need us to tell you where it's going to be. Look for the spire. Yeah, head towards those pointy buildings if you want any of that. But on Monday the 15th is the anniversary of St Matthew's Passion, the first performance, 1728. Yeah, it's very, very long and it will be if you go and see it this week again. Tuesday the 16th, I'm going to be watching the Asango Ensemble put on mm. a brand new production of... Uh, a Man of Good Hope, which is at the Limbury Theatre in the Royal Opera House. The Sango Ensemble are a South Africa-based theatre company, mm. and they're going to be telling the true story of a young refugee's journey through Africa, told through music and singing and dance. It's based on a book by Johnny Steinberg. So if you're thinking of catching some opera this week, definitely catch that and definitely say hi. Great. Tuesday is also the anniversary of the birth of Charlie Chaplin, a mere stone's throw from here in Elephant and Castle. Hmm. On Wednesday the 17th, the aforementioned St Matthew Passion is actually being put on in our hometown of Salisbury, conducted Ooh. by David Halls of the Salisbury Cathedral Choir. Also that night, if you're in the Queen Elizabeth Hall, Richard Ayres' number 50, The Garden, is being performed by London Symphonietta with Joshua Bloom as their bass baritone. It's a irreverent and darkly comic tale that is inspired by Hieronymus Bosch and Dante's Divine Comedy. Mm. The day after, the BBC singers... Uh, under James McMillan, they're going to be performing at St John's Square. They're going to be doing a mix of his own works and Gesualdo works. Gesualdo is wicked stuff. If you haven't heard it before, harmonically out of this Absolutely world. Absolutely bonkers. Uh, the work of a madman. Speaking of madmen, David Tennant's birthday is also on that day. He shares it with Leopold Stokowski, yeah, the conductor yeah, yeah. of that amazing uh, recording of Finlandia we heard earlier. Mm, yeah, they they actually get in touch both of them quite a lot to say that they enjoy the pod. So. We appreciate both their support, even if it's from beyond the grave. Friday the 19th, King's College Chapel, 30 Requiem, if that's what you're into. That's the Philharmonia uh, Chorus and the BBC Concert Orchestra and Stephen Clearbury, so it will be high quality. Saturday the 20th, if you want to take part in or listen to the Come and Sing Brass Messiah, mm. head over to Regent's Hall and take part in the Dennis Wright arrangement 
for Chorus and the Salvation Army Band. Thanks, Dennis, for creating that. Saturday the 20th is also the birthday of Sir John Elliot Gardner, who we sat next to in that foyer one time. Yeah, he looked stern. He did look stern. But he shares that birthday with a real roster of characters. The ragtag band, isn't it? Yeah, Adolf Hitler. (laughs) 1889, George Takai, 1937, Andy Serkis, 1964, and Sebastian Falks, author of Birdsong. What a gang. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Well, that's it for another episode of the Classical Music Pod. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. A couple of quick thank yous. Thank you to Steve at Signum Records for helping us out with the files for If. And also a big, big thank you to Michael Nyman for playing on the beach that one time. And thank you to the cast and crew of Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Mmm, what a film. And finally, thank you to Yannick, our new social media friend. Meow.